Father, we're grateful this morning that your love is greater. There is no greater love than a man lays down his life for his friends. Jesus, you set the preeminent example of what love looks like in spending it all for the sake of those you love in calling us to be together with you that happens through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, as the only way of salvation. And Lord, thank you that your love has assured us that you are for us and not against us. But Lord, I pray that you would help to recondition our thinking to understand what that really means. It's not that you are for our agendas and our strategies, our priorities, our comforts, but you are for the things that lead us to greater joys, that lead us to better things, that lead us to eternal hope, hope that we have in heaven, hope that we have with you. And so you allow the lesser things to fade away. You allow for us to experience discomfort here, tribulation, distress, famine, nakedness, sword. You allow those hardships to happen because you are for us. Help us to see it that way. Lord, help us to prioritize the kingdom, to seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness. Lord, help us to set our eyes on things above, not on things here. And Lord, as we look into your word this morning, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would convict our hearts and lead us into truth, illuminate us so that we can see, really see your word. And that through your power, we would go out from here transformed, changed. Do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. God, may you be worshipped and adored through these moments of looking into your word as we submit ourselves to your authority and your message. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've just begun a new series. And as Pastor David said, I would encourage you to pick up uh, one of these, this is week two, uh, so looking ahead to next week, this is the study guide that's out there right now. Uh, we're, we're starting uh, week one of the series. We are in Luke chapter 10, and while we had kind of an introduction last week, we're going to kind of really dig into uh, our study this week as it relates to danger ahead and how that relates to the gospel. We've been singing about love, and so I, I want us to just remember what is love, like, if you were to define love, if you were to describe love, if you were to try to, to point out somebody who is preeminent in terms of loving, if you were to identify and, and, and note, okay, this is what love looks like, what, what sort of ways would you, you use to describe love? Of course, from a cultural standpoint, love looks a certain way. Uh, love shows up in how we support one another, how we encourage, how we affirm, how we never get angry, how we're never insulting, how we're never harsh, how we never correct, we never condemn. That's kind of our cultural perspective of love. Love seems full of happy things, good things, kind words, supportive actions, right? But what we're going to see this morning as we look at Jesus, we're going to have to remind ourselves that Jesus is the preeminent example of love. We, we know this because uh, the writer 
uh, gospel writer John, the disciple, said, God is love. So if you want to know what love is, you look to Jesus. Jesus was the embodiment of love. And of course, uh, a verse that most of us probably have learned by heart, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that what he gave his only begotten son. Love shows up, the, the love of the Father shows up in the Son as Jesus came, he took on human flesh, he served and showed preeminent love during his ministry. So if we were to look at Jesus' life, we would say, okay, well, here are some of the trademarks of love. Love spends, and that's what Jesus does. Jesus spent himself in terms of love. His life was dominated saturated with ministry to people. There was never a moment in Jesus' life, as you look at the gospel accounts, where, where he does not seem to be busy. Uh, waking up in the earliest moments of the day, it, it, Mark will even say, be, before the sun even rises most mornings, Jesus is up with the Father, fellowshipping with God, and then late into the evening, he's serving entire villages, healing those who stood at the door and needed a touch from the Savior. Mark will say that Jesus' ministry was so punctuated by the, 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 the crowds that in Mark chapter 3, verse 30, it says, then he went home, speaking of Jesus and uh, his disciples, and it says, the crowds gathered again so they could not even eat. There was not a moment where Jesus had to himself. He, he couldn't even get a break to get a, get a bite to eat. Mark will say again in, in chapter 6, verse 31, he says, He's calling to his disciples, he says, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. That's where the retreat was supposed to happen, but it didn't happen. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. In Luke chapter 5, we saw this, this press of the crowds, the, the, the ministry of Christ that was punctuated by the crowds just pressing in. He could not get relief. And in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, on one occasion... While the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake Gennesaret. In chapter 8, verse 42, we, we see again that the Jesus is ministering. It says, and as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. The crowds had just almost, have you ever been to a, a, a game, a soccer game or a football game, and you're trying to squeeze out through the the turnstiles as you're getting to your call, you kind of kind of understand a little bit about the, the press of the crowds. And, and Jesus' ministry was, was consumed by that kind of serving and, and spending. We also see from Jesus' ministry that love speaks. That Jesus came to speak. He came to preach and proclaim the good news. This gospel message of the kingdom. His his ministry was preeminently, or uh, the, the, the first part of his ministry was a ministry of words. Jesus came to share what life with God would really look like. His words were meant to lead them to forgiveness, meant to lead them to uh, cleansing of heart and mind. We see from Jesus a ministry that love serves. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus will say, For even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to be excuse me, came not to, to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That was the posture of Jesus' heart, to come and to serve. Jesus served the masses, masses driven by compassion, healing the sick, casting out demons, meeting physical needs, raising the dead. 
Love also includes Jesus' life that was marked with truth and grace. We see that in John chapter 1, verse 14, that, that Jesus' life was dominated by the perfect balance of truth and grace. And, and, and it, was, it was the kind of, of love that included others. There was accessibility to Jesus' love so that he didn't define barriers. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't that Jesus was excluding some and permitting others based upon some sort of status that they brought to the table so that he was actually criticized for his inclusive, the inclusive nature of his ministry that he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. There's no question that Jesus was the picture of love. So why do I spend so much time talking about that is because when we come to our passage this morning, Jesus will shatter every conception you have of what love looks like. Jesus will be harsh and blunt. He'll be severe. He will seem to attack. And this is not what we get. This is not what we understand when we think about love. But Jesus as the one who embodied love, who shows us what love from the Father looks like, will be one who will be direct and severe and harsh. You might even say mean in his attack on the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Several years ago, during the, the holidays, my wife likes to, to make some goodies. And, and those of you who, who like Christmas know that, that that's kind of the, the high point of the, of the eating calendar between Thanksgiving and Christmas. You get, get to kind of indulge a bit on all the good things. Well, one of the things that, that, that my wife likes to make and we really enjoy is caramel popcorn. And you, you kind of mix the, the, the caramel on the stove. You put all the ingredients together. And as it's cooking, that aroma begins to, to spill into the house. And, and everyone kind of comes into the, into the kitchen for their first taste of the caramel. Well, when one of our kids was really small, she said, I want you to make sure, do not touch the stove. Do not touch that caramel. It is very hot. Well, wouldn't you know? that the tasty caramel was a little too enticing and this little individual put their finger, as it was about to put their finger in the caramel, my wife says, no! Why? Because of love. Love was forceful. Love was aggressive. Love was blunt. Love was direct because love wants to preserve from danger. I wish I could say that this little individual uh, obeyed the directions of their mother, but in putting their finger in the caramel and pulling it out, you know how sugar begins to burn and it settles on the skin. And, and I can tell you that we have pictures I would love to show you, and I'm not exaggerating. Uh, this little person's finger looked like E.T. It was the big old blister, and I'm not joking. Love considers what's best for the individual. Love doesn't care so much about the here and now. Love doesn't even care necessarily about a relationship in the here and now and, 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 and removing some supposed measure of conflict that may exist in the moment because love cares about the future. Love cares about eternity. Love cares about consequences. And Jesus... He's not just thinking about little fingers that are going to get burned. He's thinking about hearts and souls that will be burned for eternity. 
those who reject the message of Christ, the good news, the love that Jesus came to bring. Those who reject the message will endure the condemnation. And so our time this morning will kind of work around these two themes, either the condemnation that will come in rejecting Christ or the commendation that will come in accepting Christ. Jesus cares about hearts. He cares about future. He cares about future judgment. Jesus cared so much about future judgment that he came to die to remove judgment from you. But it would only happen as you decide to accept the work that Jesus has done on your behalf. Everything kind of hinges on this central verse in chapter 10, verse 16, where it says, the one who hears you hears me, the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Everything hinges on this truth. Will you accept or will you reject the Savior and his message? So what does rejection do? Well, rejection leads to woe. That's what we find in chapter 10, verse 13. I, I trust you have your Bibles open, that you can follow along with me as we work our way through this passage. Rejecting Christ leads to woe. Notice with me in verse 13, it says this. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Rejecting Christ leads to woe. This word woe in the Greek is onomatopoeia. And that's just a fancy word to say that it's a word that sounds like the, like the sound that it makes. For example, when, when, you, when you hear the word slap, it, it sounds like what's happening. Or, or you hear the word bang, it sounds like the word that's happening. Or crash, or crack, or boom. Those are all words that sound like the sound that it makes. Jesus, in pronouncing woe on this, these cities, is expressing the deepest anguish of his heart. Oh, woe to you, this expression that's coming from the deepest parts of Jesus. He is just expressing the grief and the sorrow and the pain that he feels about this situation. It is creating within him this anguish of heart, this woe is me at this condition of these cities this horror and dread that he feels because he knows what's coming. Jesus is not so much invoking a curse on these people as he is in, in calling to attention the reality of the truth that's in front of him. The rejection has already happened. The, the welcoming invitation has taken place. Jesus wants them to receive him, but they have decided to reject. And so Jesus is just stating the obvious, stating what is already in front of him. The truth is already there. Whoa! To these people for the decision that they've made. These cities. How did this happen? Why is Jesus so unsettled of heart? Why? Does he grieve over these cities? There are three reasons that we find, I think, in our passage today. The first is they took his power 
and presence for granted. These cities took his power and presence for granted. Chorazin was a city on the, the north side of the Sea of Galilee. It's just a couple of miles away from Capernaum. Capernaum, which would have been Jesus' home base of ministry. This is where, for a year and a half now, the, the concentration of Jesus' ministry has, has flourished. These people followed in crowds. They pressed him, as we saw. They, there was a measure of attention, a measure of alertness. They, they at least heard and listened to what Jesus had to say. Bethsaida, which was the hometown of Andrew, Peter, and Philip. And Bethsaida is the place where we saw in Luke chapter 9 where the, the pinnacle or the climax of Jesus' ministry took place. This is where as many as 20,000 people came to be fed by the feeding of the 5,000 in Capernaum, Jesus' home base for his Galilean ministry. These cities had heard the message the, these cities had, had seen the miracles. These, these cities had, had been familiar with, with the, the, the experience of the power and authority of Christ. This won't be the only time, though, that Jesus will pronounce woe on his audience. He, he will do it again in chapter 11. Just turn the page with me and you'll see <clears throat> six more woes that Jesus will pronounce on, on, on those to whom he's speaking. In 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 42, he says, But woe to you Pharisees. In 11, verse 43, Woe to you Pharisees. Then in verse 44, Woe to you. Verse 45, One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And so Jesus says, Well, you want the direct approach? Here we go. Verse 46, Woe to you lawyers, he says. Then in verse 47, woe to you. And then in verse 52, woe to you, lawyers. Make no mistake. This is coming from the heart of love. Love of our Savior in recognizing the condition of a heart that has set itself against the Lord because of their familiarity with who he is. What would prompt such a strong reply? The word had come in unmistakable fashion. They had heard it and marveled at it. They had recognized the authority of Christ. They had experienced the healing power. They had witnessed the liberating strength. They saw Jesus' command over the natural world, restoring limbs, healing, uh, repairing paralysis, giving sight to the blind, healing lifelong aff afflictions. They saw the power of God. But they also saw the presence of God in the person of Jesus Christ. They saw his compassion. They experienced and knew his wisdom. They saw his ability to, to know the secret thoughts of men. They experienced his intellectual superiority. They saw his tenderness to all classes of people his dependence on the Father, his unsurpassed knowledge of the Scripture. Jesus was unmistakably God in the flesh. And they turned their back on him. It wasn't what they wanted. He didn't come to liberate their oppression. They didn't come to restore their national identity. 
He didn't come to lift the the burden of this Roman Empire and the taxation and the oppression that they experienced and felt. Jesus didn't come to solve their immediate physical problem. He came to fix them at the deepest level, the level that they needed the most, and that was the level of dysfunction and rebellion against God. He came to liberate from their bondage to sin. He came to rescue them from spiritual death. He came to restore them to life with God. But they did not want that, so they refused. They thought Jesus was out of his mind. They thought that what Jesus had to offer was something they already possessed. So they pushed him away. What we find here is not the active pronouncement of condemnation to these people, but a declaration of the obvious reality of their human heart. It had set itself against God. They had become too familiar with his ministry. A couple years ago when we were driving our way to California to visit Sarah's family in Northern California, one of the places that we stopped along the way was, was in Utah, one of, some of our friends that were, that were living there. And, and uh, when we came into their house and kind of looked out their back window, what stood in the, in the background was this this massive mountain, and it was majestic. Like, wow, this is incredible. You don't even need a picture. All you got to do is open the windows, and there it is. This glory and majesty of this mountain. Like, yeah, it's pretty cool. But that's our problem. Our problem is the majestic becomes familiar. Our problem is that the, the glorious becomes way too common. And even here, in this church, in in this country, and in uh, our state, we have become way too familiar with who God is. We can have a little bit of God whenever we want. We can just kind of sprinkle him in when it's convenient for us. But we have forgotten about the majesty and glory of God. He has become way too familiar. And because he is so accessible and so familiar, we push him away until a time that it's convenient. And in so doing, Jesus would stand over our life and pronounce, Whoa to you. The danger of the life and the trajectory that you're on in pushing away the reality of the truth of the gospel like this city was doing. They looked, took his power in his presence for granted. We, we see in verse 13 that they refused to repent. It says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth, in ashes. If we thought that Jesus was done, we have just gotten started. And what comes next is startling. Tyre and Sidon, which initially experienced uh, pretty good relations with Israel, especially the, the northern parts of Israel, were the, the, the location where, where David would retrieve his help in terms of getting uh, materials for his house. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 11 says, The king of Tyre sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. Solomon would uh, contract out, as it were, and use materials from Tyre and Sidon as well to, to build the temple, as we find in 1 Kings chapter 5 and then in verse 9. But it was also the hotbed of idolatry. 
The wickedness and idolatry of Tyre and Sidon would be the, the, the focus and the, the character feature of this region. The name that we all know in the Old Testament, that uh, lady who was married to King Ahab, what's her name? Jezebel. Jezebel was um, a daughter of the priest who came, who was from this region, Ethbaal, who was a priest of the, the god of Sidon. He took the throne in the ninth century and, and Jezebel would, would marry King Ahab and from that point on, the trajectory of Israel would go from bad to worse. She would lead the rest of Israel into idolatry as she would lead their hearts away from God and, and, and ultimately because of the leadership that she brought in, in ushering in this idolatrous heart to these people, God would bring judgment on them by bringing in the Assyrian Empire and decimating these northern ten tribes. And, and while, to add insult to injury, while all of this was happening, the, the people of Tyre and Sidon, instead of lending support, instead they laughed. And because of their mockery of Israel during this time, it just became the, the wedge that would drive Tyre and Sidon uh, away from Israel, and so those especially living in the northern ten tribes, uh, this northern part of Galilee, their response to the Tyre and Sidon was one of hatred. Same as their hatred towards the Samaritans, but especially towards those who, who rejected them and mocked them at their demise. Jesus will say that if Tyre and Sidon had experienced the same works that were done in Chorazin and Bethsaida, they would have repented. This word repentance is the, is the Greek word metanoia, which means to change one's heart, change one's mind. It describes a life that is moving in a certain direction, occupied with certain priorities, and once that individual comes to a place of recognizing the futility of that priority, will then turn their heart in life and move the other direction. Jesus, when expressing this term of repentance, will have in mind that an individual who recognizes their sin and their standing before the Lord and, and recognizes the only answer that they have is turning towards Christ. Not just coming to a place of, of sorrow over sin, but sorrow that leads to repentance and a change of life, a change of orientation, a change of direction and focus expressed so often in first century culture through sackcloth and ashes. This was the outward expression of a, of a contrite heart, one that is grieving over sin. Sackcloth, which is a dark colored material of goat or camel hair, was used in making bags, grain bags, or making garments. And, and it was often worn by those who were in, in mourning because they wanted to feel and express their feelings in, uh, outwardly and how they felt inwardly. This irritation of, these, of this goat hair helped express the irritation of the sin in their life. And, and the ashes that they would put on themselves would, would mark their body with how they knew they, they looked in the face of God as dirty as those who were broken, as those who were stained by sin. Jesus indicates that if Tyre and Sidon had seen the works that were done in these three cities, they would have repented. 
The point of the story is not to draw attention to Tyre and Sidon. The, the point of this story is to put into the, the, the forefront the great offense that was worked out by these cities. Because in their minds, the minds of those living in Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, in their minds, those who lived in Tyre and Sidon were irredeemable. They were hopeless. God had turned their, his back on them. And Ezekiel will pronounce judgment on Tyre and Sidon. And so in their minds, there's nothing that can be done for those losers. And as Jesus stresses the blatant defiance of these three cities, he says, if they had been able to see the works that you have seen, they would have repented. These irredeemable people would have turned their life to God. We find a fourth or a third ingredient, a third reason why they had rejected the message of Christ is found in verses 14 to 16. The reason is they were full of pride. Not only were they they, the, the, familiar with the power and presence of God and, and, and ignored that power and presence. They refused to, to repent, but also because their pride was in the way, they would not receive or accept the message of Christ. Notice, it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you, Jesus says. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. When his faithful messengers proclaim the message of the gospel, one commentator says, the Lord speaks through them. And in speaking through these 70, these, these uh, 70 carried the message of Christ to the masses of these cities as they went from one city to the next. But what stood in the way of the acceptance of this message was a heart of pride. A heart that was fixed on heritage. A heart that was fixed on tradition. A heart that was set against the difficult message that they heard from the Lord Jesus. This difficult message that we see here in verse 16 that Jesus expresses was uh, the gospel message that would come out. Jesus says, the one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. The one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. What's, um, what's important for us to understand as Jesus is, is laying out this formula is that acceptance of God is an acceptance of Christ and the Father. And as you look across the face of the world, as you look at all of the religions that exist, this is the issue. It comes down to who is Jesus. Is Jesus the Christ? Is Jesus the Son of God? Is Jesus the only way? Is Jesus born of a virgin? Did Jesus die? And did Jesus rise again? And is Jesus now seated at the right hand of God the Father? And those who existed in uh, this current day, the, the first century, would have struggled with this issue because in all of their life, they would have heard and known that, that God was one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is the great Shema. That's the theology that they understood. And so when Jesus comes and, and says he's the son of God and the son of man, making himself equal with God in those statements, it would have blown their mind and the pride of their heart in 
thinking they knew theology stood in the way of acceptance of this message. They could not hear, they could not receive because their pride got in the way. Perhaps the nation which most closely resembles these cities is the nation of America. No other country has more access to the word of God. No other country has experienced great revivals that have spread across our nation, more churches per capita than anywhere else on the globe, more Christian books, more pastors, more conferences, more religious freedom than America. And yet, there's probably no nation on the globe that has departed more from God than our country. And it's easy for us because of the access that we have and the familiarity that we have with the word of God and the, the ability that we have to, to, to express our uh, worship of God when, whenever we want, that we're at, in danger of making Christ common. We're in danger of allowing our pride to get in the way that our interests matter more. We'll, 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 we'll come back to Jesus when it's convenient. Jesus would pronounce woe on those like this. In Matthew chapter 7, 21 and 23, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Remember, Judas was one of these. Remember, Judas cast out demons. He was one of the 12 in Luke chapter 9 who was given power and authority over all demons, and yet his heart was set against Christ. May we not be like those men. Accepting, rejecting Christ leads to woe, but accepting Christ leads to joy. That's where we turn next. There is some good news. That's where we like to end here. Accepting Christ leads to joy. Verse 17 says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They're rejoicing. We see their joy. And, and, and their joy is probably threefold. And, and that's what we, we're going to encounter here in the next several verses. They're experiencing joy because they participated in the power and presence of Christ. It, it wasn't common. It wasn't just familiar. But they got to not just witness it for themselves and, and see it secondhand, but they got to experience it because they were, they were carrying out that mission work of God. And so God's work worked through them to accomplish his power through their life. So they're coming back. And we're, we're going to see that, that their joy is, is so, so explosive and, and so permeates their life that joy now punctuates the next several verses where in verse 17, we see their joy. In verse, the first part of verse 20, uh, Jesus is responding and acknowledging their joy. In the second part of verse 20, we're going to see that Christ redirects their joy. And then in verse 21, next week, we're going to see that Christ will rejoice as well. He is full of joy too, which is unusual, as we're going to see next week, because the only time that Jesus is described as rejoicing 
is in verse 21, in all of his ministry. There is joy in accepting Christ. But especially as one considers the final judgment. And that's where we're heading to at the, at the very end is we need to understand that what brings us joy isn't so much the, 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 the privilege of joining in the, the mission work and accompanying the, the message of Christ, but it's what does the future hold for you? Is it future judgment or is it future con- commendation? If you've ever been on a mission trip, you, you'll understand a little bit of the joy that these 70 are experiencing. Uh, they're coming back and they are jazzed. They are, they are so excited. They're enthusiastic about what God has done through, for, uh, through them. Their, their joy is so exuberant that Jesus picks up on it. But they're excited because they weren't spectators anymore. They were actively involved in the mission. They went out. They felt used. People listened to them. And there was power that they were able to to exercise this delegated power of God over diseases and over demons. Who wouldn't be excited about that? And we find what really got them excited is here. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. They're excited because they got to experience the power of God over kingdoms, earthly kingdoms, spiritual kingdoms of this world as it confronted the, the, the spiritual kingdom of God, the kingdom of God versus the kingdoms of this world. Well, Luke makes it clear that Christ had given them authority to heal the sick. We see that in verse 9. Heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come to you. But we don't find clear direction that Jesus has given them power over demons, and yet he's done that for them, we find in the next verse. Not only were they able to, to participate in the power in presence of Christ, they were able to experience the kingdom's authority. That's what we see next. Verse 18 says, and I said to, or he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all powers of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. They had experienced this power over demons because of the power of Christ that had been given to them. The word that is used here for I I saw Satan fall, this word for fall is in the imperfect tense which helps us understand this isn't just a one-time moment that Jesus is referring to. He's not just referring to when Satan fell from heaven originally. What he's talking about here is every moment where something happened during the ministry of these 70, uh, Jesus was, was seeing Satan fall a little further. This, this lightning isn't about light so much as about suddenness. The suddenness of Satan's fall that's happening consistently over and over again through the ministry of these 70. Jesus had given them this power over Satan and the demons. The, the, the words here, tread on serpents and tread on scorpions and power over the enemy. The, these are all symbols to help us understand in relationship to Satan, these symbols that represent demonic forces. This word behold introduces this important or startling truth. I have given you power, authority to do this. It's a power uh, that is resident within the name of Christ. It's a power that comes from him as they look to him for his help, 
then they'll be able to exercise this kind of power. And essentially, as, as Jesus is describing this scene, every time a new heart has been given to God, every time a, a new life has been cleansed from demonic forces, has been liberated from the bondage of demonic captivity, Every time uh, somebody turns from darkness to light, there is uh, another step that's taking place in terms of the kingdom of God having its way in the kingdom of this world. This is the, this is the mission that God has sent us on. And it may not happen the same way. It doesn't happen through casting out demons necessarily. It happens through the gospel presentation that's why the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And so as these 70 are on the road and they're encountering people of peace who are giving their hearts to this message that, that they're bringing, another life has been, has been uh, rescued and, and now given to the, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is, is coming with force represented by the sat Satan in his, his lightning falling. Finally, they enjoyed the acceptance with the Father. They enjoyed acceptance with the Father. Jesus will pick up on their joy in verse 20, and he wants to now redirect it to help them understand where should their joy really be? Not just in the, the presence and power of Christ, not just in the authority that they're able to express through their gospel presentation, this authority of kingdom power, but especially as they think about what's eternal, that's what they should find the truest joy. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This final word that Jesus says to them, nothing will hurt you. Well, what is Jesus talking about? Well, uh, John, in our, in our time of, of worship, helped us to understand that it doesn't mean that, that this life isn't going to be plagued by tribulation or distress or famine or nakedness or sword. That, that's going to happen in the here and now. But what really matters is the future destination. What matters is that our, our names are protected and preserved in heaven. As Peter will say, you are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God keeps his own. And as they think about the benefits of ministry and mission with Christ, which should guide their energies and anchor their joy is a hope that they have in future joy. Set your hope on grace that is coming It'll be revealed in the last day. Set your hope in that. And don't fear, as Matthew will say, don't fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear those or him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So how does a name get written in heaven? How are, how are our names recorded? How does it take place? How can we make sure that our names are also included on the roster, as it were? It comes down to acceptance of Christ, acceptance of the mission. It comes down to a place of, of recognizing who you are as a sinner, 
As Romans 3.23 will say, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you come to the place of recognizing that you stand before God as one who is a rebel, one who is an enemy of him and in desperate need of forgiveness. When, when you come to, to the cross, do you, do you recognize that, that Jesus is the only way for us to access heaven? That, that the consequence or the penalty, as Paul will say in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because Jesus alone was righteous. Jesus alone was perfect. And Jesus paid the price that only God could pay. Only a perfect, eternal person could pay for us. And so how do we, how do we receive this gift that Jesus has promised? We receive this gift through believing. Acts 16.31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And Paul will say again in Romans chapter 10, He'll say, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. Have you come to the place in your life where you've recognized your need for a savior? Have you come to a place in your life where you, where you see your sin and you know there is no way that you can pay for your sin for yourself? And you see that Jesus is the only way. Have you submitted your life to him, asked for forgiveness, and made him your Lord and Savior? That is the way that your name can also be written in heaven. And you can have this hope that Jesus refers to, this rejoicing that your names are written in heaven. You can enjoy the same, uh, the same rejoicing that these 70 experienced if you accept the Father through faith by believing in the Son. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the work of your Son, Jesus. Lord, we understand that sometimes the words that Jesus spoke were hard, but we recognize that they were the embodiment of love. God, I pray that you would help us as your people to not only embrace the gospel for ourselves, to come to a place of recognizing our need for Christ, but day by day that we would be about the mission and we would, we would experience the same joy that these 70 experienced the joy of being about the mission that you've set us on, of being a catalyst for others to come to faith, uh, a, a catalyst for, for the, the kingdom of God to, to begin and, and to continue to, to flourish. Father, I pray that your work in and through us would be real and powerful, that we would know and experience your presence on a day-by-day -day basis. Thank you for giving us your word in your Holy Spirit so that the mission that you've set us on can be a reality. May we be faithful in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming this morning. God bless you.